Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We come this morning to, of course, our study in the Sermon on the Mount that has been really so challenging for us the last couple of weeks and uh, rewarding at the same time as so much has been revealed to us in these very few words. If you've been with us, you remember that Jesus gave this sermon to his disciples. We're told so in the opening verse of chapter 5. He was giving it to them in response to the crowds that had gathered at the end of chapter 4 because of his healing ministry. And Jesus wanted to teach his disciples not to misinterpret the crowds, not to misunderstand the crowds. So what he did was call them away to himself, gave them this uh, message and this sermon so that they could uh, discern, if you will, the nature of a true disciple, the nature of genuine belief. That's really what this is all about. Uh, So this comes to us as a sermon, if you will, from Jesus that exposes. It unmasks, it it sort of um, gives us insight, perspective into those who might be pretending. At the same time, it resonates with us. If you're a believer, it touches the very heart of the gospel that you received, and so it resonates with your heart. And if you've been with us in the past, you understand that this, this series of messages, this series of statements, I should say, that we know as the Beatitudes, they trace a kind of a familiar pathway for each one of us, a sequence of steps that are the typical pathway someone would take in their approach to the gospel and to God And this reminds us then of the precious truths that we first discovered when we came to know the Lord. It began, uh, you remember, in verse 3 when Jesus tells us that those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Those who, we might say, lack spiritual resources. They're poor, they're impoverished, they're, they're beggarly. They're hopeless and they know it, but Jesus says they're blessed because this is the doorway or the gateway through which they enter into the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're blessed. The poor in spirit, in turn, are those who, in verse 4, mourn. They're mourned, but they're blessed because He comforts them. God comforts them with forgiveness. That mourning and poverty of spirit then lead them to a kind of a meekness that we discussed a couple weeks ago. Uh, That is basically when someone has reached the end of themselves, they renounce themselves, they renounce their their self-centeredness, their self-absorption, their self-ambition, and all of those things. They completely empty themselves of themselves as the purpose and center of their world. Having been emptied then, they long to be filled And that filling comes, as Jesus mentions in verse 6, with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that God fills by way of a fourth blessing. We've seen how each one of these Beatitudes then kind of build on each other. They provide a, a, a list of what we might say are prerequisites. You really can't have the latter without the former. And all of it sort of flows out of a continual sense of spiritual poverty and A continual emptying of yourself, a continual mourning and grieving over the sin that's there, the eradication of all the pride and self-absorption, all that 
is set aside on this spiritual journey as we reach the point that we come to today, which is the fifth beatitude, and our focus this morning on the issue of mercy. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, as we're going to see as we go through this morning, this, this really is no different than any of the others. It is dependent, just like the others, on all the things that have gone before it. And it's uh, encapsulated in this very powerful and simple statement. Like all the Beatitudes, their profundity is in their simplicity. In some ways, they defy explanation. Because of their simplicity, the truth is so clear. But because it is packaged in such a simple way, it is, it is something that's, that, that, that you could uh, almost exhaust yourself trying to explore because these truths, because they're so wrapped up in the gospel, literally permeate the entirety of Scripture. But we're going to take a time this morning doing what we've done in the weeks past, trying to unpack this, trying to delve deeper into it, taking time to consider, first of all, the concept of mercy expounded, and then, of course, the concept of mercy exemplified. Let's begin, first of all, by just looking at the exposition or the explanation of mercy. We can begin just with a simple definition of the word. It's straightforward enough in English. We encounter this word some 500 plus times throughout the scripture, but behind it stand a number of of, uh, Greek and Hebrew words. In the Greek right here in Matthew, the word is elios which is basically translated along with mercy, can be translated at times as compassion, at times as pity, even graciousness. It's translated sometimes. When you look in the Old Testament, there are a number of words that we translate as mercy, but all have basically the same range of meaning. Compassion, sympathy, pity. All of this giving the basic idea behind the word of showing kindness and genuine concern to those who are in dire need, those who are in affliction, those who are in suffering. You show concern, not just in word, but in deed. Because mercy in its truest sense is not just the acknowledgement of needs, it is the practical help of needs. In fact, we might even say it's the identification with those who are needy. It is It is identifying with their pain and identifying with their plight. Now, all that is in some ways simple enough, but really to understand mercy, like so many of these other beatitudes, we have to understand it out of God's character, God's nature. Because the scripture tells us much about God and mercy. It is one of his essential attributes. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1 Paul refers to God as the Father of mercies. He uses that because he is particularly discussing with the Corinthians his own afflictions and his own suffering, and all this causes him to focus on the mercies of God. He he says in that opening chapter in verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, 
We felt that we'd receive the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we've set our hope that He will deliver us yet again. So here Paul is talking about God as the Father of mercies, and he's talking about it particularly because of his own experience. He's saying we were afflicted, we were suffering, we were in anguish, and God delivered us. Not only that, but he says God is going to deliver us. He will deliver us yet again. So this is an expression not only of Paul's testimony, it's an expression of his trust, an expression of his hope. He understands that the Lord sees his plight. He understands that the Lord sees his affliction. He understands that the Lord is going to rescue him. He understands all that by personal experience and no doubt also by divine revelation because he has read what you and I have read. He's read over and over again that God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. You remember Moses in Exodus 33 when he was wanting God to show Moses his glory. What does God do? God says, I will pass before you. And he does. In Exodus 34, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So this is God in his declaration of his glory. It's his mercy. It's his abundant graciousness. Tim even read this morning out of Psalm 86 for our scripture reading this morning when they repeat that. Or again in Psalm 103, they take up the theme once again. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. What does he mean by all that? Well, he means that God in his sympathy, God in his mercy, he looks on us in whatever we're going through, whatever our affliction, whatever our pain, he looks on us and he understands our frailty. He understands our weakness. He understands our vulnerability. And because of those things, he's moved by mercy to intercede He's moved by mercy to deal with us, even as the psalmist is implying, even when he understands that our plight and our suffering is at least a part, if not fully, the result of our own sin. He says he doesn't chide, he will not chide us and keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He knows our sins, he's aware of our iniquities. But he looks down and he sees the suffering that we're in. He sees the the situation that you have created because of your foolish choices, because of your inactivity, your passivity, or whatever it might be. He looks at that situation and regardless of how you got there, the Lord is moved with compassion because of the way that you are suffering. 
This is what mercy is. It is not a strict calculation and accounting of what this person or that person may deserve. That's the way we want to respond. We want to look at someone and say, well, you know, you made the bed, you sleep in it. You marked off the pathway, you walk it. This is what you brought on yourself. That's not what mercy does. Mercy is the demonstration of kindness and concern for those who are in dire need, regardless of whether it's the result of their own actions or not. Of course, the greatest demonstration of this is in our own salvation, right? Ephesians chapter 2, remember, we're told that you and I were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's saying it doesn't matter who you're looking at. We were in the same position, just like everybody else, you know, who have thrown themselves into chaos, who've cast themselves into the sewer, who have wrecked their lives because of sin. Every one of us were in the same condition. We were following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the very enemy of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But the next verse declares, but... God, being rich in mercy. That's ultimately why you're not in the condition that you're in now, because God is merciful. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, He made you alive together in Christ. It didn't matter that you were following the course of this world. It didn't matter that you were under the power of His enemy, the prince of the power of the air. It doesn't matter that you were rebelling against Him. It didn't matter because your pitiable situation that was caused by your own rebellion, by your own foolishness, by your own spiritual deadness, by all that stuff, God looked down on it and was moved with mercy nonetheless. In fact, it wasn't just mercy. He says God was rich in mercy. He was rich. He was uh, abundant in His mercy. It talks about His level of resources. They were boundless, boundless to cover every sin, every difficulty, every affliction that you had brought on yourself. This isn't like the benevolent patrons of the ancient world or the philanthropists of today who decide at some point along the way that they want to make a mark on the world, that they want to do some good deed, that they want to give away their wealth. And so they spend all their time sort of vetting out all these opportunities because they understand that no matter how much they have, they're limited. And so they want to find the best bang for their buck. They want to do something big. They want to, you know, hit something that will give them the biggest splash and no doubt the publicity that they're after. But they got to be careful because they understand that there are limits. They can't tackle everything. Well, this isn't God. The extent of His mercy has no bounds. The extent of His compassion is limitless. 
In fact, what what does the writer tell us in Lamentations? His mercies, they're new every morning. He has, an, he has an endless supply. They just keep coming back. It's not like he's searching for those who need just a little bit of mercy to help them along the way to kind of clean up their life. He doesn't search for those who may uh, cost him less. He has boundless riches of mercy and he is ready to dispense them as needed day after day, week after week, year after year for the extent of your entire life. It will be unceasing mercy. And of course, all of it begins with our salvation, which is the first and the greatest of these mercies. You remember Paul summarizes our salvation this way in Romans chapter 12, after he had given everything describing all of the component parts of our salvation from justification to sanctification to glorification, all of those things. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All of this stuff is mercies. All of this stuff is a result of this boundless mercy of God. He saves you. He redeems you. He sanctifies you. He glorifies you. It's all mercy. Unending and unceasing mercy. So we understand mercy, not just because of some textbook definition. We understand mercy because we have a merciful God and we can see the way He responds to those who are undeserving. We can see the way He responds to those who've brought all kinds of havoc and chaos into their life. We can see the way He responds to them when they cry out to Him for need. He shows kindness. He shows compassion. He relieves their burdens. He gives them blessing. Sometimes it's difficult to make sharp distinctions between some of God's attributes, particularly because the same words are used, at least in the original language, or same words are used sometimes to describe uh, multiple uh, things in God's character. Martin Lloyd-Jones, however, tries to draw a distinction between God's grace and God's mercy, saying that God's grace is that which deals directly with the guilt of our sins, while God's mercy is that which deals directly with the misery associated with our sins. It's His mercy that, that goes beyond just the forgiveness and actively seeks to relieve the burdens and the suffering. And this is what you see as a repeated emphasis throughout Matthew's gospel. You hear pleas for mercy, calling on Jesus for mercy again and again. Matthew 9, two blind men, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, a a woman with a demon-possessed daughter, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. In Matthew 17, a man has son who's gripped by seizures. Lord, have mercy on my son. Uh, Matthew 20, two blind men, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And of course, the Lord responds to all of them with his compassion and mercy. In the same way, he deals with us in rich mercy. 
Because of his mercy, we escape not only God's wrath, but we escape so many of the consequences of our sin and our foolishness, and God gives us mercy upon mercy upon mercy. So, we know mercy because of God's character, and we might say we know mercy because we've experienced it. We've experienced it. We've, we've received its benefits. And it's assumed that if you have received this mercy, that you in turn show this mercy. In fact, the Bible doesn't even really defend this. It just assumes it over and over and over again because it's so incongruent to imagine that you could be the recipient of this kind of boundless and unfettered mercy from God and then not in turn want to show the same kind of compassion and mercy to others. In other words, there's sort of an implied reciprocal relationship, a reciprocity that's bound up in so many of the discussions of mercy that you find in Scripture. If you understand mercy, particularly in the gospel, if you understand mercy that you've received, then you cannot help but show it in return. Now, this is seen, I guess, as clearly as anywhere in a parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, the story of of an unforgiving servant. Jesus tells this parable representing the kingdom of heaven as, as an earthly king, he says, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he says in Matthew 18, 24, when he began to settle, one, of, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, it's difficult to know exactly how much that is because, as you may well know, in the course of history and even from nation to nation, the value of money changes in different situations. So, uh, we don't know exactly how much 10,000 talents would be in modern terms, but we do have some perspective from the Scripture because we're told in the Old Testament that when Solomon built the temple... When he had finished constructing everything, this massive, massive temple complex that rose multiple stories, you know, up into the sky, that he decided that he would overlay the entire thing with gold, both inside and out. They would melt down gold and pour it over the temple and completely overlay the entire thing with gold. Not only that, that they were going to overlay some of the, the instruments and basins, and then they were going to make some of the utensils and the forks and the prongs and all those things out of solid gold, cups and, and uh, lavers and all that stuff, just so much gold that was, that was poured out on this temple. And when it was all said and done, and the calculation was finally taken, they were astounded because they had used a total of 29 talents of gold, 29 talents to cover this massive, massive building and all of its utensils. So 10,000 talents would cover Solomon's temple almost 350 times over. Or to say it another way, if you had 10,000 talents, you could probably build your entire house out of solid gold. It was a lot of money. Verse 25 says, And since he 
could not pay. Of course he couldn't pay. Who could pay such a sum? It's impossible. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. So here he has, because of his foolishness and because of everything he's done, he's now drug himself and his wife and his children and everyone close to him down into the quagmire. They're all going to suffer. But the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him all of the debt. It's unbelievable. The servant didn't know what he's talking about. There's no way he could have paid this. But that really wasn't the issue for the king. He was moved with pity. He thought about this man, and he thought about his wife, and he thought about his kids, and he thought about everything that they're going to suffer. And regardless of the incredible personal loss that would have come to him as a king, he was moved with pity. Because of the plight and the situation of this man. Well, Jesus goes on. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. We know from Scripture that a denarii is basically what they paid a, a day laborer at the end of the day. We see it used a couple times in Scripture for a day's payment. So 300 uh, days would be roughly a year's worth of work. They seized him. Sorry, it's a hundred denarii, half a year's worth of work. They seized him and began choking him and say, and he said to him, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Almost the exact same words. But the servant refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Now, when the king, of course, heard about all this, he was appalled and he summoned his steward, his servant, back to him. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's all it says. There's no explanation, really. In fact, the it almost like the, the scripture almost assumes it doesn't need explanation. It, it ought to be evident, self-evident that if you have received that kind of mercy, that for you to turn around and show some marginal mercy to someone else should be one of the least of things you could do. And this is the expectation of scripture that if you have received mercy, you show mercy. In other words, you come to understand mercy not just by observing God's general character. You come to understand mercy because of your direct experience of mercy with God. This is why, by the way, when you get to the book of James and you get to James 2.13, it says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's an interesting verse. It's kind of wedged in between two sections of Scripture, verses 1 through 12, which tell the story, if you will, or or give the uh, illustration 
of two men walking into a synagogue, one of them wealthy, well-dressed, elaborate, the other one poor and needy. And someone greets them coming into the synagogue and they say to the rich man, well, you take this prominent seat, you take this honored seat, you sit here. And they say to the poor man, you sit there on the floor at our feet. They show favoritism. They clearly are treating the men based on their outward assessments of what they believe uh, the men are worthy of or what they deserve or whatever you want to say, what they believe their status is. But the implication is there's no mercy. They don't have any sense of wanting to relieve the burden or remove the shame of the poor man. They don't want to have any sense of somehow trying to bring him up to a place of dignity along with the wealthy man. They don't have any sense of mercy at all in the situation. James follows verse 13 and verse 14 by then immediately asking a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? There's no mercy there. There's no mercy there. So showing mercy expresses itself at the very least, first of all, in welcoming those who are, who are you might say, uh, cast out or pushed to the fringes of society. It's also expressed by out, outgoing and outward compassion toward those who are in dire need, those who are in desperate situations, those who are really in any need. And James is telling us that God's judgment toward us will be directly related to the way that you either pass judgment on these people or the way you show them mercy. Now, back in Matthew 5, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the plain teaching here is that the way you deal with the situations that are in front of you, the way that you deal with those who are, who are uh, needy, the way that you deal with those who are dishonored or whatever it might be, the way that you deal with those determines the way that God behaves toward you. Or the standard that you use to measure your mercy is measured to you. Or you could reverse it and say the standard by which you measure your mercy from God ought to be the standard by which you measure your mercy to others. And if you fail to do that, it will affect the way that God deals with you because God responds in this way to your mercy. God gives you these abundant supplies, these rich supplies of mercy, and you're to dispense it. Jesus illustrates this, by the way, 
The same principle graphically in Luke 6.36 where it says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. In good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So again, you're hearing this reciprocity. With the measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you. And he's not, by the way, talking about your initial salvation here. Because he says that you're to be merciful as your Father has already been merciful to you. So this is not necessarily looking at the initial mercy that brought you out of your spiritual death into spiritual life. This is now looking at the ongoing mercy that characterizes your life because of that. And he pictures this all with sort of a grain transaction. Uh, the, uh, the filling of a container with grain. And you, you go into the marketplace and the, the merchant fills up your container, but he doesn't let you leave at that point because he takes your container from you and then he leans into it with his hand, pressing down on the container to make sure that all of the grain is pressed out, you know, all the pockets of air are pressed out with grain. And then he takes it and he shakes it even more to make sure everything settles down and he's not finished yet because then he keeps pouring grain on top of the compacted grain now until it reaches the point where it begins to overflow the sides of the container and you have to begin catching the excess in your lap. Now we all know that's not the way commerce works, right? I mean, I know me, last time I bought a bag of potato chips, it was about, you know, that big, and I opened it up, and poof, you know, two handfuls of crumbs at the bottom. That's not normally the way that things work. Normally, a merchant isn't seeking to give you more than what you have earned or more than what you have asked for. But this is the way he says God's mercy is at work in your life. This is the way God's generosity is at work in your life. He gives to you in this excessive kind of a way, which, by the way, indicates that this is not mercy received because of merit. He's not giving you something because you bought it or purchased it or earned it. He's giving you more than what you need or asked for or could ever pay for. And he's giving it to you so that you dispense it to others. You are to give, as he says in Luke 6, you are to show mercy as you have received mercy. And so there becomes this sort of virtuous cycle as God pours out mercy in your life. He saves you from your sins and from your life of despair. You turn around so overwhelmed by the mercy that you start showing mercy to other people. And as you dispense that mercy to other people, God is just pouring out more and more mercy to you so that as you are merciful, you are blessed with more mercy. You're blessed with more mercy. This is the ongoing supply of God's mercy in your life. In some ways, it's a little bit like what Jesus speaks about later on in Matthew 6. When he gets to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 
He spells out the way that we ought to be praying daily. And he tells us along the way that we ought to pray that God would forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And then he explains this in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father grant you forgiveness. Now, it's important that you understand what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about your salvation. Jesus is not teaching you to pray every day so that you can be saved again because you happened to sin the previous day or whatever. He's not telling you to ask for forgiveness every day from God because somehow you're under the condemnation of God every time you fail. He's not suggesting that you'll lose your salvation and you have to regain your salvation. In other words, what he's talking about is not judicial forgiveness. He's not talking about the forgiveness that you and I receive when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God, where God will condemn us to hell. When you come to Christ, the scripture says God forgives your sins. As we read uh, even earlier from Psalm 103, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. He forgives your sins forever. And there's no threat that those sins will ever be brought up against you and charged against you in that judicial way again. So that Paul can declare there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never stand before the judicial seat of God and have to suffer the consequences of your sin. That is forgiven. However, there's a different kind of forgiveness that's spoken about in the Scripture. It's not judicial forgiveness. It is parental forgiveness. It's talking about the kind of of reconciliation that naturally takes place between members of a family when they have done things that offend one another and it brings friction and it brings distance and it brings uh, um, coldness or whatever it might be. It brings a, a, a disruption to the relationship. And the relationship can never quite be right until forgiveness takes place. And in that situation, we need to ask forgiveness from one another. Well, what Jesus is talking about here when he's teaching us to pray every day for forgiveness, what he's talking about is not judicial forgiveness. He's talking about parental forgiveness. He's saying that you need to be well aware of the ways that your life is not honoring to God. It's not, it's not obeying God. It's not following God. And you need to be confessing those things to the Lord and asking for his forgiveness so that not that there would be a restoration of the relationship so much as there's a re- restoration of the intimacy. Much like your own children, when they might do something that offends you or dishonors you or disobeys you, by no means does that jeopardize their relationship to you as a a father-son or a mother-daughter or any of that. The, 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 The act doesn't threaten the legal standing they have as your child, but it may very well threaten the intimacy that you enjoy with them. And so there needs to be a conversation. And there needs to be forgiveness. And you need to deal with the issue. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. If you don't do that, then your father won't forgive. If you don't forgive others, he won't forgive you. If you're holding grudges against other people, if you're demeaning other people, if you're slandering other people because you can't forgive them, he won't forgive you. Well, the same thing's true with mercy. You're blessed. As a merciful person, you're blessed because God continues to dispense this un, un, or inexhaustible mercy in your life. He's pouring it out over and over and over again. He's giving you an inexhaustible supply of mercy that you're then dispensing to other people. He's pressing it down and shaking it down and pouring it out all over your lap. And your, your mercy then is, is, if you will, supplied by the inexhaustible stores of God's mercy that are continually showing up in your life. But there might be times, of course, when you lose sight of just how merciful God has been. And you begin to withhold kindness and you begin to withhold compassion and you begin to withhold you begin, begin to withhold sympathy. You ignore those needs of others. You have no concern about their burdens. You no longer are sympathetic to the plights of other people. You turn a cold heart to whatever their anguish is because you've lost sight of the plight that you were in. And at those times, as an act of discipline, God's mercy may dry up in your life until He brings you to the point where you are once again pleading with Him for mercy, learning the lessons that you have forgotten when you lost your sense of mercy. So we learn this mercy by our own experience. Jesus is saying this is the pathway to blessing and it's a reflection of the mercy that God has poured out into your life. And you'll see this, he says, in the life of a true believer. They will be compelled. They will be driven by a sense of mercy because they're overwhelmed by the mercy that they are receiving from God. Well, that, that touches at least some of the explanation, expounds it a little bit for us. Let's finish our time then by quickly looking at an example of this mercy. And we've already seen so many this morning throughout the Scripture. We recognize that you could go many places to see mercy demonstrated. But I want to draw your attention back to a familiar, familiar story in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. We've already looked at this in our study of the Beatitudes because so many of the Beatitudes are reflected in this story. But certainly one of the most poignant of the Beatitudes or, or poignant reflections, I should say, is this Beatitude of mercy that's demonstrated by the father of this prodigal son. You remember the story? He, he demands his inheritance because he wants to get away. He wants to get out of the house. He wants to go out and pursue his own lifestyle without worrying about accountability. He perceives there to be these unreasonable restrictions that come down to him from his home, from his father, perhaps even from the religious community around him. And so he wants to get 
to a place where he could indulge whatever came to his mind. So he gets his inheritance and he liquidates it, immediately goes off into a far country, completely leaving his, his family in shame and dishonoring his father, destroying his reputation, that is the reputation of his father and his own reputation, of course, not to mention squandering the hard-earned property that had been passed down from generation to generation in his family. He goes out and he engages in an extremely self-centered lifestyle until he reaches the point where he blows everything. Everything. It's right at that moment when he's most desperate that God sends a famine. Finds himself with nothing in the midst of a famine and under the full weight of God's judgment He reaches the end of himself. He finds himself in a pigsty, slopping pigs, wishing that he had permission to eat some of the slop for himself because his belly was so empty. And at that point, the scripture says, he came to himself, verse 17. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He remembers something. He remembers the mercy of his father. He says, you know, my father has hired servants and he takes care of them. In fact, he takes care of them so much they have more than what they need. They have more than enough bread. He overpays them. Verse 18, I'll arise and go to my father then and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's not a household servant. These were the guys that would have been brought off the street every day. They were promised one day's work for one day's wage, nothing beyond that, no guarantees, no security. They had to live with the daily burden and worry of whether they would get hired back tomorrow. So he doesn't even want to be one of the house servants. He doesn't even want to be one of the guaranteed servants. He just wants to be the lowest of the low. If he could just have that, Well, he heads back and as he's on his way, we read in verse 20. While he was still far or still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt pity. He felt compassion. He felt mercy for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's totally unexpected. You understand in the Middle East, just like it is today, saving face was such an important issue. And this father had been humiliated by his son. He had been, he'd been shamed in the community by the behavior of his son. People would have asked him over and over again, how could you let that happen? How could you let that happen with your child? I mean, I would never do such a thing. Well, the father sitting there out looking outside the gate of the city, no doubt, and he looks a far way off and he sees his son coming. And he understands sort of what the expectation is. People would have expected the father to send word to the son, acknowledging that he's gotten to town, but maybe making him wait outside the gate for a few days, giving him an opportunity to let sort of the shame sink in, 
Let him stew a little bit on what he's done. Help him to maybe think about it a little bit more. People would be coming along, lecturing him about all the things he'd done. Oh yeah, you thought you were great. You ran off and you did this and you did that. You sure overestimated yourself. And then after a couple days, perhaps the father would invite him to come to the property for a visit and they begin having sort of negotiations and discussions and then maybe somewhere along the way there might be an agreement of terms where they might uh, welcome him back into the circle of the family somehow. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. He sees his son a far way off and he's moved with pity And he begins to race down the road after him. You understand, I've never run in a robe. You know, a robe reaches down to your ankles, but I can imagine it would be pretty entangling. That was the garb of the day. People wore these long robes to protect them from the sunlight. And particularly, you know, old men would be uh, wearing their dignified robes and this guy was one who had servants he didn't do work so this would have been probably some sort of fine uh, piece of clothing and it was sort of the cultural expectation you know you wore this robe to cover your body but he begins to run down the robe and most people believe it would have been necessary for him to grab the hem of his coat and pull it up and carry it in his arms as he ran basically exposing all of his undergarments to everyone watching as he ran down the street. But he didn't care. He didn't care. He wanted to go out and meet his son. Why do you want to do that? Well, I think at least part of the reason was he didn't want him to walk in alone. He didn't want his son to have to walk into the city alone, to have to face the ridicule, to have to answer all the questions, to have to hear all of the jeering. He wanted to get to him before he had to face the crowds, to face the shame. So he runs down the street to meet him before he could get any closer. And not only that, but he immediately, in verse 22, he tells his servants to bring the best robe Every wealthy guy would have had one of these. It was their best suit that they kept set away for some special occasion. It wasn't sort of their daily wear, but this was the thing that they would have, they would have brought out whenever they wanted to you know, put on a show, and they had this thing in store. And so they went and fetched the robe so that he could put it on the sun. Now, you understand, the guy's been in a pigsty. He hasn't had a place to lay his head. He hasn't had a place to bathe. He's walked now for days coming back from the Gentile territories. He would have been stinky. He would have been filthy. And when he gets there, he finds his father doing what? Throwing his arms around him, kissing him repeatedly over and over again, and then getting the best clothes that he has and wanting to cover him up. Why would he do that? Well, I think for one reason, the last thing he wanted was for people to have to see his son in the rags and the tattered clothes that he had brought on himself because of his sin. He wanted to shield him from the shame. He wanted to cover some of that stuff up. 
And not only that, he tells him to bring him the ring so that he could put the ring on his finger, essentially undoing all the things that the son had done when he had so unceremoniously renounced his connection to the family and demanded his inheritance. Now he wants to just put him right back in his place. The ring, the signet ring, would have identified him as one of the central members of the family. And then he says, go and kill the fatted calf. Kill the fatted calf. Let us eat and celebrate, he says in verse 23. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. Fatted calf would have been that one who was set aside. Unlike all the others that grazed out in the fields, this one would have been kept in the house and he would have been fed corn and grain, fattening him up, keeping him for this kind of celebration and when you killed the fatted calf you had some of the finest prime veal that you could offer and it would feed hundreds of people big celebration this isn't something that you kind of cut into and then you store away and eat on for several days there was no refrigeration there was no storage methods so you had to kill the thing and you had to feed a bunch of people and you had to do it immediately with all of the, all of the attachments to it, all of the, the, the drink and all of the sides and everything else. This would have been an expensive, expensive ordeal. And no doubt people would have thought, why? I mean, the guy might do it again. I mean, he might rake you again. He might, he might bolt next week. But none of that seems to be the consideration of the father. None of it seems to be the consideration. He's just gripped with mercy. All he can see at this point, at least, all he can see is the shame and he wants to cover it up. All he can see is the loss and he wants to restore. All he can see is the pain and the suffering and the affliction and he wants to ease. That's all he has. This is, of course, God for his role toward us. But it's also very much us, what Jesus is calling for from us, this mercy that he calls for for us. If you are one of my disciples, he's telling the 12, you'll have this kind of mercy, but you'll be blessed Because as you dispense this kind of mercy, you're going to receive it. God's going to shower it. He's going to pack it down and shake it down and pour it out and it's going to run out all over you. And you're going to turn around and you're going to show more and more mercy. And he's telling him, this is the way you'll know. You see all these crowds, whatever their religious interest is, this is one of the ways you'll know a true believer Because they're going to be merciful. They're going to want to relieve burdens. They're going to want to relieve affliction and pain. They're going to want to give. They're going to want to do all those things. Because they've received so much. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed then with a word of prayer. Bow together with me. Father, we are so grateful for your mercies that are new every morning. Indeed, we confess we've received beyond our measure. 
You've given to us, so how freely we ought to give to others. And it's only right, Lord, we who are so impoverished and we who are so dejected in our grief and our mourning. You have filled us. You filled us not only with righteousness, you filled us now with abundance. We have received so much, Lord, we are ready to give because you have given to us. I pray that you would make us then a people who are marked out by mercy. And to the extent that we've lost perspective on the mercy we've received, Lord, I pray that you would grant it to us. Refresh our hearts and minds with the renewal of the riches of your mercy. May it become a matter of meditation. May it become a matter of praise and a matter of emulation in our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.